0: So we continue this morning our study of who is Jesus. I invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, and I'll begin reading in verse 15 here in just a moment. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. I want to begin by asking you a question. What is supreme in your life? What is preeminent above all other things in your life? Not just what is prominent. We all have prominent things in our lives. Our family, our health, our finances. Those are prominent things in our lives. But what has the preeminence? What is supreme in your life? What stands head and shoulders above all others in your life? As we visit the church at Colossae this morning, we find that they had a problem Like so many churches, they were healthy in many, many ways, uh, but they did have a problem in the form of false teachers, false teachers who were presenting a false Jesus. What was the question? What was the, the problem of what was going on there at Colossae? It's the same question that we're seeking to answer. Who is Jesus and what did he come to do? There at Colossae, they had a group of false teachers that came to be known as Gnostics, Gnostics said that they had a secret knowledge, a special knowledge about who Jesus really was. They did teach uh, that God was supreme, but they said that God, just like the sun, had all of these spirits uh, emanating from him, radiating from him just like the rays of the sun. And so the the Gnostics taught that Jesus was a spirit radiating from God. Therefore, he was weaker than God. He was not as authoritative, not as powerful as God. Now, they would say, yes, Jesus was important, but they did not teach that he was preeminent. Warren Wiersbe sums up the, the false teaching of that day when he says, the false teachers of Colossae, like the false teachers of our day, would not dare deny the importance... Of Jesus Christ. But they would simply dethrone him by giving him prominence, but not preeminence. So I ask you, what is preeminent in your life today? Here in Colossians chapter 1, we have a packed portrayal of the preeminent Christ as supreme above all. So if you found your place in God's Word, would you stand with me as we read, beginning Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 down through verse 23. the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death." in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated as I pray. Father in heaven, we come once again to a glorious portrait of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, our minds are so broken by sin, so feeble from the fall, that we cannot begin to comprehend all the wonders of your Supreme Son. Would you help us now to fix our attention on your Word? Help us to set aside all distractions, all things that would prevent us from hearing you. Would you make the complicated clear? Would you make the clearly understood to be clearly obeyed? And may we worship Christ as supreme above all, as preeminent in our lives and in our church, we pray. Amen. We have before us again a Christ hymn that's found in the New Testament handed down to us from the early church. This poem or hymn from these earliest believers emphasizes that Christ is above all. Christ is above all because in all things He is preeminent. He's above all natural things, and He's above all spiritual things. He's above creation, and He's above the church. As we look at the hymn itself in verses 15 through 20, we divide it up into two stanzas. The first stanza, Christ above creation, in verses 15 through 17. Christ above the creation, verses 15 through 17, Paul writes, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God. The image of of the invisible God. Paul affirms that we serve an invisible God. As the children's catechism says, God is a spirit and does not have a body like man. John chapter one, John writes, no one has ever seen God. But here Paul tells us that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the image, he's the exact representation of God. You see, no one has ever seen God, But Jesus taught that when you have seen Him, when you've seen Christ, you have seen the Father. John chapter 1, a passage we studied earlier this summer, you remember that Jesus has literally exegeted the Father. He's explained the Father to us. He's made it clear to us who God is. It's more than just a physical resemblance. God, through Jesus, has shown us His character Calvin wrote, in Christ, God shows us His righteousness, His goodness, His wisdom, His power, in short, His entire self. When we look at Jesus, we don't see just a passing resemblance of God. We see the image of God, the exact representation of the invisible God. This summer when I was in Anaheim for the Southern Baptist Convention, my first morning I was walking to breakfast And I saw someone who I knew from seminary, not a a close friend, but but well enough to say hello to. And he he looked at me kind of funny and he said, Charles? And I said, hey, it's good to see you. And he said, well, I I tried to say hello to you about an hour ago. And and the guy I said hello to said, my name's not Charles, my name is Paul. And, And we just both kind of chuckled about it, didn't think anything about it. But it happened again. And again, and before long, not just passing acquaintances, but even the people I was staying with, people who knew me quite well, said, We we saw this guy, and he looks a whole lot like you. You need to meet him. And so before my time in Anaheim was over, I met my friend, my new friend, named Paul. He and I, uh, you might say, bear a passing resemblance. We even took a picture standing side by side, but uh, it's only a passing resemblance, because when you study the facts, we are not actually related at all. But when we come to Christ, it's not just a passing resemblance to God. Christ is the exact representation of God. You remember in Hebrews chapter 1, we saw that Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. And as we said then, we'll say again, if you want to see God, look at Jesus. You see, we as His creation, we are made in the image of God. But Christ is the image of God. So, Christ is supreme above all, over all creation, first of all, because he is the image of the invisible God. In his relationship to the Father, Christ is supreme above all. But as we look at the rest of verse 15, we see in his relationship to creation, Christ is once again supreme above all. The end of verse 15 says, He is the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn. Oh my goodness, we have a problem. Because that heretic that I've mentioned to you a few times, Arius, he's crying out from his grave. See, I told you, Christ is a creation. He's the firstborn. If you've ever had a conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses, they take you to this verse and they say, Look, Christ is a creation. He is born. He is less than God. Well, to be sure, we've seen this summer throughout this study of Christ that Christ came to earth and He took on a human nature. He received a human nature through His mother Mary. But Christ, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, has always existed. We've seen that over and over and over this summer. So when we come to this word, firstborn, we know that it's not referring to genetics. It's not referring to genealogy. You see, in the Old Testament, And the ancient culture, the word firstborn, it could refer to the actual oldest child in the family, but it so often referred to the most honored member of the family. It wasn't an emphasis on your genealogy, it was an emphasis on your status. You see, the firstborn son was privileged. The firstborn son had status. Genesis 49, when Jacob was blessing his children, he spoke to his oldest son, his firstborn son, Reuben, and he said, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. What's so interesting about the case of Reuben is that he was a biological firstborn, but because of his sins, he did not receive the status of firstborn. He was passed over. He did not receive the honor that normally went to firstborn. But we see it used in that situation for the actual oldest child in the family. But in Psalm 89, God calls David a firstborn. But he's clearly referring to status and blessing. Psalm 89, 27, if you want to look at that later. David was clearly not the firstborn of his father, Jesse. You remember, he was the runt of the family. So it wasn't referring to him being the oldest But he was the one who had the status. He was honored as firstborn by God. God himself even called the entire nation of Israel God's firstborn son, Exodus 4.22. So if God's using the word firstborn for a whole nation, we know he's not talking about genealogy, but again, he's talking about status, priority, and privilege, not your actual heredity. So when we see the firstborn of all creation, we understand that Christ is not a created being. He has always existed, but He is preeminent. He is above all. But the Jehovah's Witness might say, you're just making that up. You're just making it say what you want it to say. No, you keep going in the passage. That's Rule number one in reading your Bible, you keep reading. You read more than just one verse, because verse 16 tells us how He's the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16 says, For by Him all things were created, all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Christ has the privilege, the status of firstborn, because He is the Creator. The Colossians, false teachers, said that the physical world, physical things, were bad. And the spiritual world, spiritual things, that was what was really good. And they taught that they had that secret knowledge. They could get you connected with the spiritual world. And they said to be the creator, that was the lowest of the lowest of the spirits emanating from God. It would not be a compliment to a Gnostic to say that they were creator. But Paul fully contradicts them. He says that Christ is creator, and He's creator of all things. Not just some things, all things. Right there in the verse it says, All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. The visible things of this earth, God created it all. The invisible things of the heavens, God created it all. Both physical and spiritual. God made all things, and that was a badge of honor. He is supreme over creation because He created it all but again the people who emphasize the spiritual knowledge they would say wait a minute what about all the angels what about thrones and dominions and rulers or authorities these things that they spoke about concerning the spiritual world and the angels and Paul says he made it all he's supreme over all because he created it all all things were created through him and for him there' at the end of verse. 16, through Him and for Him, all things stand created. All things remain created. That's what He's saying there. Through Him and for Him. You see, Christ is both the agent of creation, but He's also the goal, the end goal of all creation. You see, in a way that we don't fully understand, God the Father, through Christ the Son, created all things. But what is the end or the goal or the purpose of all things? It's Christ. It's Christ. All things were created through him and for him. Adrian Rogers used to talk about people coming to him saying, What's this world coming to? And he pointed them to Colossians chapter, world, chapter 1. This world is coming to Jesus. As Kent Hughes, another preacher, uh, spoke, he said, Everything began with Him, and all will end with Him. All things sprang forth at His command, and all things will return to Him at His command. He is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega, and one day everything will give Him glory. Therefore, we worship Christ as supreme above all. Christ is supreme over creation. Verse 17 tells us He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's before all things. He takes precedence because He is preeminent. He's before all things. He is above all. But in Him all things hold together. Christ is creator, but He's also the sustainer. He holds all things together. It doesn't just mean that Christ completed creation in the past and therefore everything's okay today. No, Christ actively holds all things together today. Every molecule, every particle, Christ is actively holding all things together. A.T. Robertson said that the permanence of the universe rests then more on Christ than it does on gravity you see, they taught us in school that gravity is holding all things together, but there could come a day when uh, gravity no longer works and everything falls apart. But the Scriptures say Christ is holding all things together. So that means, fellow believers, that we can rest assured, no matter what Al Gore and any climate... Uh, Global warming activists want to tell us, everything is under control. We're not just a matter of days away from the earth, blowing up in a fiery furnace, unless God Himself says that is how it will end. This world is just fine until Jesus says it is finished. He holds all things together. So Christ is above all of creation. He's supreme above all. But He's also above the church. The second stanza of this hymn, verses 18 through 20, Christ is above the church. Verse 18 says, He is the head of the body, the church. Christ is above all natural things, over creation, but He's above all spiritual things, the new creation, the church, Christ has formed. And He refers to the church with that familiar metaphor of being the body of Christ. Now Paul fleshes that out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but I want to just remind you of that here. For the church to be the body of Christ, that means that every part is important. Every part of the church is essential. You are the members of the church, the members of the body, and every member of the church matters. I trust that when you get ready uh, to go out to an errand this week, perhaps when you get ready to go to the doctor, you're not even going to pause for a moment to wonder, should I leave my right foot at home or should I take it with me? When you get ready to go to the grocery store, you're not going to wonder, will I need my elbow or not? You understand that your body is essential and if you've lost a body part along the way, you know how difficult that can be. All members of the body are essential. It's true for the human body, and it's true for the body of Christ. And so when one member of the church rejoices, we all rejoice. And when one member of the church hurts, we all hurt. And so we as a church body are hurting this week, because our brother has gone to be with the Lord. But we take comfort as the body of Christ, because we are in this together. Every member of the church matters. Are you connected to the body? Are you hanging on by a thread? Are you just hanging around at the fringes? Or are you plugged in, actively a part of the church? As we think about the church being the body, we have to ask the question, who is the head of the church? Well, we can all take comfort knowing that the pastor is not the head of the church. And all God's people said, Amen. But when we look carefully at the scriptures, we understand that the deacons are not the head of the church either. Many Baptist churches are mixed up on this, and I'm so grateful that it's not that way at Ramah. That we have deacons who want to serve the body of Christ, who want to protect the unity of the body of Christ. But when we look at the scriptures, the pastor is not the head of the church, the deacons are not the head of the church, and we the people are not the head of the church As Baptists, we are congregational. We make decisions together. But it doesn't mean that we have a democratic vote about every single thing because we as the body are not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. It's His church. He bought the church. He formed the church. We wouldn't have a church without Christ. So Christ is preeminent. He's above all. He's above the church. But you ask, why? Why is He preeminent in the church? Well, Paul explains The middle of verse 18. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. Now there we have that same word firstborn again. And it's used the same way. It means He is preeminent in that. He's not the first in the sense of time, but He is first in kind. Think about that carefully. Christ is not first in time in resurrection. He's first in kind. Because as Jesus conducted His earthly ministry, He raised other people from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. So Christ was not the first one to experience resurrection, but His resurrection makes all the difference. His resurrection is first in kind because He was raised to never die again. All of those people that Christ raised from the dead, they still eventually died. That Christ lives and He lives forever. Christ was raised with a glorified body, and because He has a glorified body, you and I can have confidence that we too will have a glorified body. Christ lives eternally, and because of that, we can have confidence that we too will live eternally. Jesus lives, and so shall we. Why is all of this, Verse the end of verse 18, so that in everything He might be preeminent, Preeminent, not just prominent, but preeminent. Far too many churches make Jesus prominent, but they do not make Him preeminent. Prominent things can be moved around in status. You can have something that's really prominent on your calendar this week, but it's not preeminent. It's not something that rules over every bit of your life. Christ is not just prominent. He is preeminent. He is above all Oh, but Paul's not done. Look at verse 19. For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see these false teachers in Colossae, the, the Gnostics, they taught that the fullness of God, it had to be distributed. It had to be spread out. You couldn't put all the fullness of God in one place. Why, that's just silly, they would teach. But Paul, once again, completely contradicts them. He says, in Christ, all the fullness of God, was pleased to dwell, to make a home, to take up residence permanently. Again, A.T. Robertson said, all the divine attributes are at home in Christ. All of God's goodness, all of His character, all of His love and mercy, it's at home in Christ. Not because it's something that was added to Christ, but because that's who He is. He is God, and so the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him. Oh, but verse 20. The hymn reaches a climax through here. Not only was God pleased for the fullness of Himself to dwell in Christ, but God was pleased, through Christ, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. For something to be reconciled means that there's a relationship that is broken. Perhaps you have a broken relationship with someone in your life, whether it's a, a sibling or a child or a parent, and you have a, a fractured relationship. Something has happened along the way, and there's a need for reconciliation. Well, when we look at our relationship with our Creator God, we understand from the Scriptures that all of us have a broken relationship with God. And it goes all the way back, as we've seen week after week, it goes back to our mother and father, Eve and Adam, in the garden. Because they sinned, we too are born sinners. And we have a broken relationship with God, and it needs fixing. But the bad news is, you can't fix it. And I can't fix it. I don't care who the best handyman that you know is, they can't fix it. The best psychologist, the best counselor, no one on earth can fix the broken relationship that we have with our Creator. We can't do anything about it. Our sin separates us from a holy God, but we can't do anything about it. But through Him, through Christ, God was pleased through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Did you know that the earth is under the curse as well? We see that back in Genesis chapter 3 when God laid out the curses, the effect of sin. Earth is under, create, is under the curse. Creation is also longing for the curse to be reversed. When we look at Romans chapter 8, it tells us that creation is groaning for its Redeemer. When we look around, if you work outside, you understand that creation is not being helpful Creation is not trying to make your life easier. As you work in your garden and you have the thorns and the thistles and the weeds and you have the pest and you have all these things, you understand this is not how it was supposed to be. All of creation is longing for redemption. And when we look forward in the book, we know that there's coming a day, a glorious millennial reign of Christ, when even the lion will lay down with the lamb. When the child will go and lay his hand over the hole of the snake and will not be bitten. When all things will be far better than we can imagine on this earth. It's the closest thing to heaven on earth, that glorious millennial reign of Christ. But then comes the new heavens and the new earth. When things will be made new, all things will be made new. Christ has done all of this through the blood of His cross. Through Christ, God is reconciling to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. If we have a need for peace, that means there's currently an absence of peace. If you look at military history and there are peace negotiations, there's only peace talks, peace negotiations because there's a war going on. Christ has made peace because we were at war. With God. We were at enmity with God. God was not our friend. He was our enemy because we had sinned against Him. But through Christ, He has made peace. It wasn't something that was easily brought about. He made it by the blood of His cross. The blood that we sang about earlier, the blood that so many want to avoid. Christ has made peace by the blood of His cross. Well, that's the wonderful hymn of Colossians one fifteen through twenty. But what are we supposed to do about it? What do we need to? Uh, res- how are we supposed to respond to what we've heard? We're not going to look at every word of it. But in verses twenty one through twenty three, we are reminded of how we should respond to this glorious hymn of Colossians one. Everything we've seen so far has been about Christ. But look at those first two words of verse twenty one. And you, and you, you who are in Christ, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's a picture of what we were before we came to faith in Christ. You say, Pastor, I became a Christian when I was a small child. How dare you say that I was alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds? Dear friend, apart from Christ, Everything we do is evil in the sight of a holy God. Apart from Christ, we still are alienated from God. We are hostile in mind. We are hostile in deed. Everything we do is against a holy God. And if you're here this morning and you've never uh, received the peace of Christ through the blood of His cross, that is your condition this morning. You are alienated from a holy God. You are at war with Him. But Christ. Verse 22, Christ has reconciled in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy, blameless and above reproach before him. That's what Christ has done. Through Christ, we are holy, we are blameless, we are above reproach. That's our position in Christ. So what are we supposed to do when we're reminded of this glorious Christ hymn of Colossians 1, 15-20? Paul says we're to remember what He has done, we're to act like it. We're to remember what He's done. Be reminded this morning, dear saints, that through Christ you are holy, you are blameless, you are above reproach in the sight of God. Are you living like it? Can that really characterize your life? Remember what Christ has done and live like it. But verse 23, he says, If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. If you continue in the faith, Paul is not wanting anyone to doubt their faith, but we all have to seriously consider our faith. Are we trusting in ourselves or are we trusting in Christ? Are you looking to the finished work of Christ on the cross for your salvation? Or are you still trying to do it in and of yourself? For those who are in Christ, Paul is confident that we will continue in the faith, not because of our goodness, but because of God's. God will keep us. He will hold us fast. Therefore, what are we supposed to do? Stand firm, stable, and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. That was what was happening in Colossae. These new fancy teachers had showed up and they said, oh, you want to have the higher life. You want to really have a spiritual, a deeper spiritual life. Listen to us, we'll teach you how to have a deeper walk with Christ. And through that, they completely obliterated the uh, the teachings about Christ of the Scriptures. So what did they need to do? Hold fast. They needed to stand fast, stable, steadfast, continuing in the faith. But what do we need to do in the midst of a a world that seems to be changing day by day? Even as churches continue to compromise on biblical truth and biblical authority, what are we supposed to do? Remember Christ. Remember what He has done and stand firm. Christ has saved us. He's made peace by the blood of His cross. May we live in that peace each day. Let's pray.